Good. Hey, welcome everybody. We're just waiting for everyone's audio to connect. Welcome on this snowy, snowy afternoon for a short history of Motown with Craig Morrison. Take it away, Craig. Right. I'll say, I'll say hello. And there we are. I can't see you, but I hope I hope that you can see me. And I'm all here. And I'm ready, and we have a great story, lots of music. I'm planning to do this over two hours, which is usual. So um, I don't know if that's what you're expecting, but a lot of songs, a lot of music, good stuff. All right, so the first up is what is Motown? And Motown, of course, stands for Motor Town, which is Detroit, which is where they used to make the cars, Motor Town. So a lot of slides, let's get going. Uh, we should see this. Do we see this? We do see this, yes. So on the left, you have this Motor Town Review. Wouldn't that, that have been an astonishing show to go to? You are about to hear some of these people and their beautiful songs. So little Stevie Wonder, he was little. He was, what, 12 when he made his first hit record? The Miracles, later to be known as Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. They've got the word genius there under Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye. I love this. All in person. <laughs> That's what we've been missing, isn't it? All right. Yeah. People. Concerts. Well, they're coming up, folks. Martha and the Vandellas, The Contours, Mary Wells, Kim Weston. I don't have any song of her today, but most of the others we'll hear about. But let's get rolling with the story Okay, I've got a, two things to manipulate here. Okay, I'm manipulating now the slides, that's it. Okay, where are we? There is Detroit in the red on the left. You get a sense of, hey, where's Montreal? Oh, this is ethnocentric for Americans, this map. No, that's not fair. Anyway. We're not, I don't know if you can see the cursor, but we're somewhere up around there. Not that far away. And near on this map here, you see Detroit right around the Great Lakes and right next to the Canadian border. Yeah. Well, what else is around? Of course, uh, New York, in, in terms of music cities, New York. Hey, there it is. New York, uh, Nashville, Memphis, New Orleans, Philadelphia even. All music cities, very important. Chicago also. And each one of those cities seems to have its own specialty. Chicago blues, New York has Broadway and uh, Simon and Garfunkels and the doo-wop singers, uh, country music in Nashville, Memphis is where Elvis Presley and the Rockabillies started. New Orleans has jazz. Well, Detroit 
had other things, has other things, but for the world, it's really Motown. What is it all about? Well, look at that. Jackie Wilson. This is very much a part of the beginning story of Motown. On the right, you can see he was in a group called Billy Ward and the Dominoes, including Clyde McFadder, who had a fantastic career, but not on Motown. That was on Atlantic Records. But this is the foundation of many of the singers that had success in the 50s, Motown singers and others. They came out of rhythm and blues, but a lot of them came out of the church. That's where most of these people, including Jackie Wilson, got their start. The Dominoes with Billy Ward, that's early 50s. Moving into the middle 50s, you have people coming up like Little Willie John, the song Fever. You probably know the Peggy Lee version. By the end of the 50s, you have people like Ray Charles coming into more prominence. He had hits early in the 50s as well, but the soul music starts late 50s, very early 60s. Motown starts around that time, late 1950s. But Jackie Wilson was there at the beginning in, in, uh, in, a, in a kind of odd role. Now I'm going to tell you the story. Here's the first song. Let's just get some music going. This is a song written by, uh, co-written by the man who founded Motown. His name is Barry Gordy. And you'll certainly hear more about him in a moment. But let's hear what Jackie Wilson has to do with this song. And Barry Gordy later said he was astonished at what Jackie Wilson brought in his interpretation to a song that Barry Gordy co-wrote. Right. 
pretty fantastic but that's not Motown that's 1957 Motown hasn't been started yet but it was written by the man who started Motown and so here is the tale Jackie Wilson as you saw from being with Billy Ward and the Dominoes already well known as a singer this is in his solo career he's starting to have hits Barry Gordy is there as a songwriter Jackie Wilson, by the way, was a big inspiration for a lot of singers and their stage shows. Now, Jackie Wilson was a great singer, but he had an incredible stage presence. He was a great dancer. He could really move. And his moves were, and it's known because the people said, like Michael Jackson, I copied Jackie Wilson. I was inspired by Jackie Wilson. Okay, so here's the deal. Barry Gordy is writing songs for Jackie Wilson. And one day, a young high school group comes to audition for Jackie Wilson's manager. And Barry Gordy happens to be sitting in the corner, kind of scribbling away on his, his ideas, right? The group is called the Matadors. And they come in to sing for the manager. And the manager rejects them. But Barry Gordy says, I can't believe it. Now, this is all, I'm just paraphrasing stuff that's already in documentaries and in the books. Barry Gordy can't believe that they were rejected. So he goes and speaks to the lead singer, who turns out to be Smokey Robinson. And he says, you guys are pretty good. And a couple of those songs I really liked. And then they introduce each other and, Barry Gordy says, I didn't think he'd know who I was because I just, you know, I'm a, I'm a tiny credit on the bottom of a record label. But Smokey Robinson says, Barry Gordy, who writes songs for Jackie Wilson? Anyway, they connect and Barry Gordy wants to encourage this young singer. So they get together and Barry says to Smokey, see, we're on a first name basis here already. Says, you wrote all those songs? He says, yes, I wrote all those songs. So Barry Gordy, in another session, gets Smokey Robinson to sing every song he wrote. And he critiques them. And Smokey Robinson takes the critiques and revises them. All of this to say that Motown is basically the story of the friendship between Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson. And Smokey Robinson later becomes the vice president of Motown. Of course, he has a big singing career himself. So Motown starts after all of this. Barry Gordy still has a little bit 
more of success writing songs for Jackie Wilson, but Jackie Wilson is not a Motown artist. Nonetheless, just so you know what's going on. Hit the right button here. There we go. I wanted you to hear this because this is a, a, a much better known uh, Jackie Wilson song. I'll just play you a bit so you get the, the feeling. Not a Motown artist, but important in the story. Just a little sample so you can maybe place Jackie Wilson a little, a little better. Now we can we continue the story. Smokey Robinson and Barry Gordy actually write a song together. And one of the songs is called Shop Around and it's a big hit for the Miracles. And it turns out to be Motown's first million seller. So really it, it kicks off with the two of them. The song Shop Around, I'm not going to play it, but if you familiar with it that'll be good and if you don't i'm just going to tell you it's the story of a mother's advice to her son don't take the first girl you meet shop around and get the one that's right for you but the image of the shopping you know that's what motown's all about their idea was to sell a lot of records of course they did every record company would like to do that but oh there's more story behind that Little by little, we're getting there. Little by little. Now we go into uh, about Motown. About Motown. What's going on? Well, Barrett Strong, he had a song called Money. And you might know it because the Beatles did it after. A lot of people know that version more than they know the Barrett Strong version. Barrett Strong... His hit was the other earliest and biggest hit on Motown. So if you take the concepts of the first two biggest hits, we've got the shop around, which is about shopping and getting a good bargain, and the song Money, which is about shopping around and getting the bargain and having the goods to do it. But shop around is about the mother's advice. And I'm just going to tell you that I think these two songs are kind of the key to what's Motown all about. Motown was designed more than almost every other record label that I'm familiar with to be a hit factory. And the connection with the mother, the family, is also huge in this story. As Barry Gordy did describe once, he said his family, oh, there's one million records sold for the Miracle Shop Around. 
1961. Barry Gordy said in a, in a documentary, his family, actually, I think it was his sister that said that, was very unusual because they saved money and used that money for the members of the family to go into business. I'm sure they used it for other things. But Barry Gordy tells the story that he was, he said, I, I was a bit stubborn. He said, he went to work on an, on an assembly line making cars. That's how they make cars, right? If you're the guy that puts on the windshield wipers, you put on windshield wipers, here comes the next car. You put on the windshield wipers, you put on the next car. It's very piecemeal work. He was working for Lincoln Mercury on the assembly line. And he didn't like it. So he quit. He also said that he was a failure until he was uh, 30 years old. He opened a record store. And he said, I didn't listen to my father's advice. My father told me the customer was always right. And customers would come in asking for the blues and he'd try to sell them modern jazz. And they'd say, well, can you get it? And he said, no, you got to listen to this stuff. So he was stubborn. And nobody that wanted the blues came back to him. So the record store failed. So when he quit the assembly line, his family said, now, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to write songs. And they couldn't believe it. Turns out he got successful writing songs. So now you know the background, him, he's tried everything. He's now connected with Smokey Robinson. They've had a couple of hit records. The thing is happening. One of the members of the family went out and got this house. Now, I've been to Detroit. I went, well, I guess, about maybe around 1999 or something. I went for a conference on ethnomusicology because I am an ethnomusicologist. And one of the outings from the conference was to go tour through Motown. So, of course, I went. Now, this is the old picture of what it looks like. The Motown Sound, that was one of their mottos, their labels. And also Hitsville, USA, they were very focused. And the idea of having hits was to have hits, not for the black community, not for the white community, not the people that are green or purple or orange or anything, it's for everybody. So their idea was to write songs that had a universal appeal. Well, it worked. Here he is. Barry Gordy himself holding up the Supremes album, Where Did Our Love Go? A very successful businessman. Now, this is what it looks like. I suspect it probably still looks like it, but it looks like it looked like that when I went there. They'd taken over a second house. And in fact, they'd little by little had various other houses in the neighborhood. And if you think of what an assembly line, how it works, each person has a specialty and they do that. It also worked like that for Motown. So you can imagine, and many people have made this connection, that Barry Gordy actually learned something while working on that assembly line. And what you have in Motown is you have various divisions. Now, some of them are obvious because... All record companies have those sorts of things, like the studio and the, and the musicians, the studio musicians and the singers. But Motown also had lots of songwriters 
and the songwriters would get together, I think it was every Friday, and review the songs that had been recorded that week and decide which ones should be released and assign artists to songwriters. And if you had a hit record with, let's say, The Temptations last week or last month, well, then you got a chance to write another one. So it was very competitive. It was friendly, but it was competitive. When I toured this house, I realized that the upstairs at one point was living quarters, but it also was the shipping department. There was a big table with all kinds of albums stacked up, you know, in, in a museum sort of way, replicating the way things were in the good old days. In the basement was the studio. On the main floor was the reception. So here's a joke for you. If you go to the Motown building and you go to, on the elevator, there's only two buttons. One says, get down. And the other says, get on up. I don't know if you think that's funny, but I think that's pretty funny. Well, here's Barry Gordy in the studio control room. That control room is on a, a, a little, it's almost like a cupboard off the landing on the way down to the basement. He's looking through a window at a studio room. And this is what you see. There's the window on the right. This room is not very big. It's where all the stuff happened. And musicians called it the snake pit because of all the wires going on the floor from the microphones. Well, that's only the tip of the iceberg. Because the other, let's just back up a slide or two here. The other houses, one of them was a charm school. That is, most of these people that were singers for Motown came out of low-income housing or the ghettos. And some of the guys, like the Four Tops, said, when you were young, where we were growing up, you were either in a gang or in a singing group. And one of the other guys said, or both. <laughs> so... Because they were all positioned for upward mobility and success in the music business, the singers actually were taught. If you get invited for dinner, this is the fork that you use for this. If you're a lady and you're wearing a skirt or a dress, this is how you can get in and out of a car and still look ladylike. Uh, this is how you shake hands. This is how you greet people. It was all about representing the company with dignity and charm and class. There was also another house where they were taught choreography. If you've seen the Motown groups on television, they're all coordinated. They sing great, but they, they, they dance around the microphone. They've got all these moves. So all of these were little divisions. So Motown was really set up kind of like that assembly line business. This came out a few years ago. I don't know, maybe what, 25 or 30 years ago, standing in the shadows of Motown. It started out as an homage to this bass player, James Jamerson, a legendary bass player who played on lots of hit records. The guy who wrote it, his name was Dr. Licks. That's a pseudonym. Anyway, 
and she, Barry Gordy writes the foreword for this book. What this book was, was giving the world the insight as to who were the musicians on these Motown records. James Jamerson was a spectacular bass player. These musicians were not credited, well, perhaps once in a while, but the public had no idea who were all these people making the, the music on the background. The singers were named, the songwriters were named, musicians not. So on this, in this book, it's full of transcriptions. It's for bass players to learn how to play like James Jamerson. But on these two compact discs, if you look at the names, it's, it's not the best uh, image of the book cover, but you see names like Paul McCartney, um, well, it's the Smokey Robinson, uh, Stevie Wonder, but bass players, John uh, Patitucci, uh, these are famous studio bass players. Who else we've got? Um, John Entwistle of the group called The Who, Geddy Lee from the group Rush, the Canadian group, Jack Bruce from the group Cream with Eric Clapton. So some very, very famous bass players, and they, they replicate the bass solo, they learn the bass solo and they play it. And before they play it on the CD, they all say the same thing. I love these records. I had no idea who this guy was. This created a sensation in the music world, which led to this. You may have seen this movie, Standing in the Shadows of Motown. Now, Standing in the Shadows of Love is a supreme song. So there's a link there. But look at the tagline on this DVD. They played, meaning the band at Motown, the studio musicians. They played on more number one records than the Beatles, the Beach Boys, the Rolling Stones, and Elvis Presley combined. <laughs> and this is their story. It's a fantastic movie. So they finally got their due. Well, there are officially 13 Funk Brothers, but there was dozens and dozens of people that played on Motown records. When I was in Detroit, going from the conference site to the Motown Museum, the bus driver had played on Motown sessions. But the core of the Funk Brothers were 13 guys. You can see James Jamerson on the right-hand side, holding his bass straight up. And that's a reminder that he was start, he started out as an upright bass player. So you play the upright, the acoustic doghouse bass, you play it upright. And he tended to play his electric bass in a more upright position than most bass players do. After that movie came out, the Funk Brothers became famous and they went on tour. I went to see them at the jazz festival, just me and about 200,000 of my closest friends, a free outdoor show at the jazz festival. Mary Gordy got these guys by going into the clubs, listening to musicians, jazz musicians mostly, and saying, you want to make some money? And they're like, sure, come and play in the studio. They were great, great musicians. All right, let's listen to another song. Here's a famous song. You probably know this song. You broke my heart because I couldn't dance. You didn't even want me around. And now I'm back to let you know 
I can really shake them down. Love that false ending. Now, the the reason this song is even better known than it was when it was first a hit record was this. It was in the movie Dirty Dancing, a very very popular movie. Do you love me? Yeah. Well, now this. I should open up the chat. See if anyone wants to chat. We see the cursor. Okay. Question and answers. No. Are you planning to run a history of rock and roll concert at any time? Ah, uh, well, you know what? Concordia, last I looked, had not even opened up the concert hall. So, it doesn't look likely. We'll maybe do one somewhere else. Well, that's all I can tell you. What I can tell you, though, is the Wheel Club, where we've been playing for years and years and years, on Monday for Hillbilly Night, which I'm part of, is opening up to live human beings to go in the door. Monday, <laughs> and I'll be there. And also Vintage Wine, my group, which has played at the Wheel Club for 
well, up until the pandemic, we'd already played 10 years every month. We are going back on the 9th of April, it's a Saturday night, to play with all four members of Vintage Wine for the first time in two years, a dance party with live human beings. It's amazing. <laughs> yes, someone says, wasn't Motown bought by a bigger company? Yes, I will tell you that later, but it's true. So I've opened these up. I hopefully I, oh, oh, what happened? I lost something. There we go. Yeah, I can see chat if you want to chat with me. I can't see you, but I can see your chats. Okay, so Dirty Dancing helped make this movie, uh, sorry, this song famous again. And I actually saw the contours. They came to town a couple of times. I'm talking about Montreal. I saw them at Metropolis, but I know they also played at the Outremont Theater. We move on, we move on, let's move on. The right button here. All right, now these early groups, the contours that we just heard, the Marvelettes, they're very much in keeping with what else is going around in the music business at that time. This music, of the Marvelettes, they'd be calling this girl groups. Uh, and a lot of them were really girls. I mean, some of them were in junior high school. Um, the Supremes first auditioned when they were in high school and Barry Gordy said, come back in a year after you've graduated, which they did. But I'm just saying that girl groups were very, very young. And so the Marvelettes maybe not quite so young as the very first ones that started. They fit into this. And so Motown is, is working with what's around in the music business. They're about to get more innovative, but they're still showing innovations as at this early date. You probably know this one also because the Beatles did it. it means the Beatles were listening to Motown, but everybody was listening to Motown, but lots and lots of Motown songs got redone by other people. Bruce Springsteen did Edwin Starr's War uh, quite dramatically in concert. Oh, and there's many, many other examples. So here come the Marvelettes.
Did you notice that when she says, deliver the letter, the sooner the better? <laughs> pushed up the echo in the studio. And we start to hear in Motown records and other records at the time, more studio manipulation to the sound that the listener hears on the record. Uh, this history of technology and how it affects the sounds and how it affects the creative process is something that's always fascinated me. Well, let's move on. Oh, no, I wanted to tell you something else before we move on. I wanted to tell you more about the Funk Brothers. When I was in Detroit at that time, I went to the conference on ethnomusicology. One of the nights they brought in live music, they brought in a blues singer named Alberta Adams. And I was slightly familiar with her because she had recorded on chess records in Chicago. Now she was very old at the time, but she was still singing. And I went to that concert and she was good, but the piano player was fantastic. So my plan to interview the singer immediately shifted to my plan to interview the piano player. So that's what I did. It was very brief. It was after the concert. I just went up to him. I turned my tape recorder on and asked him a few questions. And it turns out that he was one of, and maybe even the very first funk brother. His name was Joe Hunter, not to be confused with Ivory Joe Hunter, who had hit records. But this Joe Hunter, he'd played on the road with some, well, he played with uh, Hank Ballard and the Midnighters, the guy who wrote The Twist. And he was playing in the clubs and Barry Gordy saw him and brought him in. He also plays on Shop Around, Joe Hunter does. So anyway, I had a nice little conversation with him and found out about the Funk Brothers more. I'd heard the name. And when the Funk Brothers <clears throat> came to Montreal and I'm standing in the crowd at the jazz festival with my close 200,000 friends, I asked myself, I wonder if Joe Hunter's there. So I got out my binoculars, a very, very good thing to bring with when you go to these huge outdoor shows. And there he was. He was on stage with them. I was very happy for him to get that kind of recognition late in his life. Also on that show, the Four Tops came out and performed. And lots of other singers doing tributes to the songs that we know and love. Okay, moving right along, share screen, he hits the button, what happens? He's, oh, there they go, they, back to these guys. Okay, Martha and the Vandellas, Dancing in the Streets. Now this song has been redone. Wasn't it David Bowie that redid this? Anyway, lots of people, uh, Van Halen. <laughs> yeah, lots of people have done this, great song. What does it sound like, though? Sounds like this.
Yeah, forget the Motor City. That's a great line they stuck in that song. Uh, I taught at Concordia for over 20 years. I retired uh, that's about two years ago. And uh, almost all of the courses I taught were music courses. Beatles, psychedelic music, black music. Oh, a course on rhythm and blues music. A uh, course on the music traditions of seven different cities, including Detroit. Anyway, um, one of the courses that I taught that was not about music was on festivals, Montreal's festival culture was the name of the course. I also taught a course called the visual and performing arts in Canada, but that's another story. And in this course on Montreal's festival culture, I looked at the history of festivals. I looked at uh, how they how they are run. We went to the jazz festival. We had a kind of private access and uh, some free tickets. Students really like that. And one of the concepts I presented was a book about collective joy. And the author was saying, there's no international organization for collective joy. But Montreal, like Edinburgh, has positioned itself as one of the world's leading festival cities. And so the cities are taking on the role and the people in the cities are taking on the role to have all this collective joy. And one of the images in this book that they used was this song, Dancing in the Street. Come on, everybody get together, have a good time across the ocean blue, all these cities and so forth. But I thought it was an interesting concept. We have all these organizations for sports, you know, for giving awards for movies and records and, you know, countries have their armies and we have wars and all of this all organized. Nobody's really organizing internationally for a collective joy. We're doing our bit though, aren't we? Little by little. Moving on folks, moving on enough philosophy. We move on. We, well, well, look at these, look at these, well, look at these ladies with their wigs on. They're classy outfits in uniform and the way they stand, the coordination. This is all part of the Motown upward mobility class appeal to everybody. Well, it sure worked. Now let's talk about the miracles. They used to be called just the miracles. Then they became Smokey Robinson and the miracles. And that's um, Claudette at the bottom there. She Didn't she marry Smokey? I think she did. Anyway, she left the group and it was just four and it became Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. And you might have noticed that a lot of the groups that started with just a collective name became somebody and the somebodies, Diana Ross and the Supremes. Originally, they'd just been the Supremes, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. One of the guys in the Temptations was lobbying Hey, I sing more than you guys. Why don't you make me so-and-so and the Temptations? They weren't having any of it. They all sang lead. They all took turns in the Temptations to sing lead. So they weren't having any of it. But that was a tendency that happened over the years. Smokey Robinson down there below on the left. 
and what a great group they were. They came to the jazz festival. I saw them. This is one of the earlier ones, going to a go-go. It's about discotheques, going to a discotheque, dancing to records. I suspect Motown records would be there. Some interesting lyrics in this. And look, Smokey's being pushed around on a skateboard. Skateboards were popular even way back in the 60s. Of course, now we have skateboards that are pretty high tech. But I remember, I remember making a skateboard out of cannibalizing an old set of roller skates. That was a board with skate wheels. Anyway, there's skateboarding, but it's really about dancing. So let's see what happens. I just love the beat on that. It was really great. The Rolling Stones must have liked it too because they did that song. And if you look at this record cover, you see the tracks of My Tears, which was a hit much later on. I'll get to that. 
Ooh, baby, baby, that was redone by Linda Ronstadt. So we see the impact of Motown was at the time hit records and lingered and still is out there. The, there are Motown tribute shows. In fact, I did one. I did a show a few years ago at the Oscar Peterson called Blues, Rhythm and Blues, Motown and Soul. And we were 16 people on stage because we had to have a horn section, four-piece horn section, as well as the usual dozen or so of us. I'm going to move on now to the Temptations. Look at the way they're dressed, beautifully dressed. And if you look on the right-hand picture, the color picture, the pants are a little bit short. And that was done on purpose because they wanted viewers and people attending live shows to notice the foot, the fancy footwork. It's been said that the Temptations outsang, outdanced, and outperformed every other group in the business. They also sold a ton of records and changed with the times, as we'll see later. Now, this song, My Girl, you probably can recognize if you play that game. I can name that song in two notes. Well, maybe not, but you hear that and you right away, you, you, you know, oh, that's my girl. That's my girl. Well, that's my girl. That was written by Smokey Robinson. And there we see another example of how the, well, there's lots of examples of how the Motown people helped and worked with each other. Now, I'm just going to give you a, a, a small story. <laughs> I see the comment. Thank you. Three cheers for spreading joy, Craig. Well, I'm on, as Louis Armstrong used to say, I'm on the side for happiness. And when I read that, I said to myself, hey, I play for that team too. <laughs> All right. That little opening lick that I just played, there's an interesting anecdote about that. The guy who wrote the book, Standing in the Shadows of Motown, about the bass player James Jamerson, his name, pseudonym, as you saw in the book, Nom de Plume, was Dr. Licks. But his real name is Alan Slutsky. Okay, so he got very interested in Motown and focused on James Jamerson, wrote the book. The book was a sensation. All those bass players contributed, got a lot of publicity. And then he started to think about the other people at Motown. And so he tells this story of how he went for lunch with the guitar player who created that lick that I just played. Bum, ba -dum, bum, ba -dum. As they walk into the restaurant, they're being seated by a hostess or a host. And the song comes on the music. And they sit down at the table and the guitar player is just about to say, you hear that? I'm on that record. And I created that little lick and he hesitates and he doesn't say anything. And the author 
Bell and Slutsky, Dr. Lick says, why didn't you say you, you did that? Why didn't you say that you did that? And he said, nah, they wouldn't, that person wouldn't have believed me anyway. And what does it matter? That was one of the motivations for the movie, Standing in the Shadows of Motown, to bring those guys recognition. What a great thing to do. You gotta go see the movie if you haven't already. And if you have already, go see it again. It's worth it. In the movie, Joan Osborne totally nails the song, What Becomes of the Brokenhearted. It's one of my favorite Motown songs. And it's one of the best performances in the movie. And who should be there at the Jazz Festival in Montreal but Joan, Ar Joan Osborne singing What Becomes of the Brokenhearted. Jimmy Ruffin, brother of one of the guys in The Temptations. A little anecdote. We move on. We move on. We want to hear that song, don't we? I think the answer would be, we've heard it a lot, but we do want to hear it again. I've even got the mother. 
What a fabulous song and what a great arrangement. Now you hear orchestra on that and uh, they would bring in members of the Detroit Symphony to play on these records. This is not synthesizers, folks. This is real orchestral instruments. Now look at this picture. Look at the, the, the pants are a little short and there are, we certainly see the fantastic footwork. And white pants and black shoes, it's like very clear. They want us to look at it, and we do. And they, they just dance great. Now, I was just going to say, when my group Vintage Wine would be playing dances, we would always play the same two songs at the beginning of the night. Now, when we do a big stage show, like a history of rock and roll, roots of rock and roll show with lots of people. Everything is coordinated. We know exactly what song's coming next and who's gonna sing it and all of that. But when we play dances, we just play whatever the heck we feel like it. We don't work off a set list. We see what the mood of the people is. We see what the mood of the dancers, what that mood is. We see what we feel like playing. We think of songs we like to play or we haven't played in a long time. We just wing it. We call it stream of consciousness set list okay it's fun but we always open the show with the same two songs and the first song is under the boardwalk by the drifters that's not a motown song it's from atlantic records and the second song is the one we just heard my girl by the temptations and the reasons there are more than one the reasons we play these two songs at the beginning is first of all we know them really well <laughs> ever since we are children we've heard these songs and we've played them dozens hundreds of times maybe and so it's a good time to double check things like is everything sounding all right you check the sight lines can i see alex way over on the other side of, you know or something in the way can i see ryan on the bass can i see gary you check the sight lines you check your sound you don't have to think about what you're playing. You just kind of situate yourself. But the other reason is people go crazy for these two songs. And a friend of mine back in Victoria, when I used to play in bands there, he said, some songs are chair suckers. And what he means is they suck people out of their chairs onto the dance floor. And those two songs really start the night beautifully for us, for the audience, and those that are dancing. And then we play whatever the heck we feel like. All right, just thought I'd tell you that. We're just, you know, we're just chatting, right, aren't we? Well, not too many chats on the chat line, but moving along. What, what are we, what, what, what's he going to give us next? Huh, Stevie Wonder. Now he, at the beginning, as we saw with that poster, he was billed as little Stevie Wonder. And then he grew lots and lots of hits. I chose this one because it's a good one. There are so many good ones.
Everything's uptight, all right, out of sight. Some good slang there from the 60s. You notice there is a fabulous horn arrangement on that. The horn players are just kicking it and really making that song move along. And the lyrics, he's a poor man's son. He has no money in his pocket. He's in love with a woman who was raised in a big mansion full of butlers and maids. He can only give her love, but he says, I'll never ever make her cry. And this, there's other songs. In fact, Stevie Wonder has other songs about poor people, but they have dignity. They don't, they can't buy a lot of stuff, but they have love. Bringing dignity to, to all is part of the Motown business. Here's a couple of pictures. This is uh, more in the, in the very early days, but look at all those horns. And you've got, well, it really looks like James Jamerson there on the upright bass. Wow. It looks like we've got one, two in the picture and a slide of another trombone, three trombones, a trumpet player, guitar player in the back. Partly obscured by Stevie Wonder's face, we have a guy playing the vibraphone. He's right next to the grand piano. And you can look through that window and see the tape recorder. That's the, uh, the window halfway up the stairs. And there's the door behind the trumpet player to go up the stairs to the uh, main floor of that Motown house. It's all happening down here in the snake pit. Don't see too many wires on the floor, but great, great shot. And that was published by the Detroit Free Press, as you see to celebrate the anniversary of Motown, 50 years, and they pulled out some just fantastic photographs. Here's a picture of Stevie Wonder in later years with his daughter, and he wrote a song about her. Aisha was her name, I, I believe. That was on one of his, his later records. Um, Stevie Wonder came to the jazz festival. It was a real coup. The, uh, there had been a bit of an economic depression and the jazz festival was like everyone else sort of scrambling. And the city of Montreal or was it the Quebec government? Anyway, somebody sort of at the last minute gave them an injection of cash to, to carry on. And they realized one of their dreams, which was to book Stevie Wonder for a gigantic outdoor show. But I saw Stevie Wonder also at the Bell Center. And what I noticed was there was a drum kit set up towards the front of the stage. And sure enough, in the middle of the show, Stevie Wonder got up from the keyboard and got on the drums and played drums. And when he started to play, the audience all recognized, we know that beat. And we realized that he had played drums on some of his own records. What a talent. What a talent. Now, I'm gonna do a little prelude to the next business. Questions in Q&A, look there, where's Q&A? Oh, there it is. Do you think that boy bands, Backstreet, N-S-Y-N-C, etc will be remembered as much as the Motown singers are. I don't think so. I don't think so. But who knows what history is going to bring us.
some of those songs you still hear them being played on music and everywhere like the backstreet boys uh, i want it that way you still hear them but they don't have the cultural reach of these early songs there's many reasons for that if you think about i'll try to answer this question in a little greater depth if you look at the 1960s we're looking at the mid 60s right now am radio had every kind of music on it by the time you get to say 65 66 let's say 67 somewhere around there on the same radio station in the same hour you could hear the doors the tijuana brass frank sinatra nancy sinatra the motown singers the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, the garage groups, the pop singers, Dean Martin. You could hear every kind of pop music on the same station. When you get to around 1968, FM radio comes in and the audience divides. And that's only continued. The fragmentation of the audience is what I'm talking about. And now we have how many channels, hundreds of channels on television, not much on any of them, I'd say. And we have all the internet stuff and, and you will never again, I think, have a Beatles because everybody's not listening or hearing or knowing the same things. It's all niche markets. So I think that's what's happened to a lot of this later music, including the boy bands. Here's another comment. Great Doc, 20 Feet from Stardom. Yes, I saw that. That was an excellent movie about the backup singers. Have any backup singers reached stardom, stardom as front singers? Um, yes, but not with gigantic careers. Maybe hit records here and there. Can't think of any exactly right now. But... How do I get out of this? Let's see. <laughs> that, that worked. Look at that. Standing in the Shadows of Motown is available on Hoopla, free, free through the library. Well, run for it, folks, because you got to see it. Okay. I'm going to uh, give you some background information, and I'm going to tell you where I'm getting it from. It's from this book, which I wrote. <laughs> American Popular Music Rock and Roll. Oh, there's my name down at the bottom somewhere. Oh, look at that. PhD, yes, folks, I worked hard for that. This is an encyclopedia A to Z or Z, and I wrote it, and it was published in 2005. It was for, the, was for an American academic publisher called Facts on File, and it was part of a series of seven books all published the same day. Mine was on rock and roll, but there was a book on the blues, a book on country music, a book on jazz, and so forth. And it was for the college and high school library market in the States. And in my chapter on Motown, my entry on Motown, I'm going to set up a little bit the Supremes that are coming up next. Motown's motto was the sound of young America. The music was fresh and wholesome. Rooted in gospel and blues, but aimed not at black youth or white youth or any other race, but at everyone. The songs were emotional and genuine, with yearning romantic lyrics, set to infectious rhythms ideal for dancing. 
The arrangements were imaginative, but not difficult to grasp. And Motown never succumbed to a formula sound. Of the songwriters who worked in friendly competition with each other, the most successful were a team of Eddie Holland, Lamont Dozier, and the other Holland brother, Brian Holland, known as Holland Dozier Holland, or if you're in the know, HDH. Eddie Holland, Lamont Dozier, and Brian Holland. In 1966, HDH won eight Broadcast Music International Awards. Now, BMI is one of those performing rights organizations. These are the people that collect royalties for songwriters. In Canada, we have one called SOCAM, Society of Canadian Authors and Publishers. And I'm a member, and I've earned enough royalties to want to take my wife out for lunch. <laughs> All right. BMI and, it, and the other biggest one is ASCAP. And maybe you've seen these names on record labels or something. But anyway, BMI, mega. So they won eight BMI awards for the years. In 1966, they won eight BMI awards for the year's most performed songs. The Beatles were second with five awards in 1966. Over a three-year period in the mid-1960s, Holland, Dozier, and Holland wrote 28 hits that made the top 20. When they left Motown in 1967 over a royalty dispute. Now, this is the first seed in the decline of Motown. There'll be other factors. Neither they nor the company would have such success again. There were other factors. I'll tell you about them. Many Holland Dozier Holland songs were sung by the Supremes, including Where Did Our Love Go? Baby Love, Come See About Me, Stop in the Name of Love, and Back in My Arms Again. In gowns and wigs, the Supremes were elegant and before lead singer Diana Ross left for a solo career in 1969, they had placed 33 songs on the pop charts, a dozen of them number one hits. Barry Gordy then focused his energies on Diana Ross's thriving solo career. This is another factor in the decline of Motown. They became an item romantic, let's be clear. Diana Ross did act in a few films, but in doing so withdrew, and Barry Gordy, I'm telling you about, he, gen, he, he withdrew from the general running of Motown, but that's later on, we're, we're not quite there yet. Let's go with the Supremes. Slides up, boy, okay, I did the picture there. Let's get the, oh, there they are. Now, if you wanna, if you wanna do this, I'm, I'm gonna just stop for a sec. If you wanna do this right, you can do the choreography, ready? Stop, you gotta throw your hand up like that. And then you gotta, in the name of love. So each time that comes up, 
you can be a supreme, a supreme fan of the Supremes, let's just say. those wigs. I want to tell you a little story. There's somebody writing, I saw Stevie Wonder 50 years ago at the Diplomat Hotel on Metropolitan Boulevard. Rosa Richter. Wow, that would have been great. Yeah, that's a long time ago. I once saw on television, it was an Ed Sullivan show, I think, Diana Ross singing, and as she was bobbing her head, her wig was falling down her forehead. That was a bit weird, but uh, even more than that. When Diana Ross left, the Supremes carried on and had a couple of hit records, and Florence Ballard died, and they replaced her, and the original Supreme was Mary Wilson, who just died not that long ago, a few months ago. And she was great. They all were great. They were all lead singers but diana ross got the nod to do more 
But Mary Wilson carried on, and there's some good footage of her in a documentary called Only the Strong Survive, where she's doing her show. Diana Ross, in more recent years, decided she wanted to go out as the Supremes. And it was a kind of a scandal in the music world because the only other Supreme who was alive that was an original was Mary Wilson. And Mary Wilson publicly stated that the amount of money that Diana Ross offered her to be on this show was an insult. And I think the actual figures were published. Anyway, Mary Wilson had carried on as Mary Wilson of the Supremes or Mary Wilson and the Supremes. And Diana Ross hired the other two Supremes that Mary Wilson had trained, but didn't get Mary Wilson because of this insulting offer, according to Mary Wilson. And I think she was right. So there was a scandal. It was in the press and some of the dates were canceled because ticket sales were not good. I think in particular because of this story. But Diana Ross, she came to Montreal and she performed and I saw it. They had local orchestral players to back, you know, the, the, the backup band. That was pretty good. But you could tell Diana Ross was reading her lyrics. There was a teleprompter and you could kind of tell she was, you know, glancing at it. Like, stop. What's the next line? Oh, yeah. In the name of love. It was a bit of odd. It was an odd thing. At least I saw it. Yes, someone writes, I never liked Diana Ross. This confirms it. I, you have to separate the human being sometimes from the art. And she made great art. But yeah, it's kind of creepy. If you don't believe me, you can look up all the facts and get them. We move on. More songs. Okay, we can't talk so much. Let's go on with the music. What are we going to see next? The Supremes. Look at that. Great shot. Look at those wigs. Here's another great shot. You actually see Holland, Dozier, and Holland with the Supremes. Now, you can probably guess which two are brothers, but maybe you can't. Great shot. We move on, the four tops. The top acts at Motown, at least the ones that established the label as gigantic, were the Supremes, the Miracles, the Temptations, and the Four Tops. Let's hear what they sound like. A lot of hit records.
what is that a flute in there that's uh, shadowing the vocal i don't know if you're noticing the bass playing <laughs> bass playing is amazing on these records it just drives the records along a uh, great shot oh did you notice he sings just look over your shoulder which michael jackson sings in one of his songs uh, i'm gonna show you this great shot the band in action the motown funk brothers was an interracial and that is to say um there were black people and white people another famous bass player was the white bass player bob babbitt and he was the one playing bass in the movie standing in the shadows again you see their their pants are a little short they've got fancy footwork and they're into it well you'd be too if you were there so would i we move on we move on oh, great beat there's an interesting story about the the capitals this is not motown it just happens to be the Funk Brothers, Moonlighting. <laughs> the Funk Brothers, yeah. They were jazz musicians playing at night. They were studio musicians playing in the day. And for this record, they got lifted. They got borrowed by another record company to make a hit record. And it worked. So it's not Motown, but it's the Funk Brothers. Let's see what it sounds like. Another great bass line. Yeah. 
Come on, people. Can you do it? Now they're doing the jerk. <laughs> I used to dance the jerk. It's easy. <laughs> no. You probably recognize that song because it's been used in commercials. It's been used in movies, but Cool Whip. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Someone says, Rosa again, listening to the music, you could visualize the sync dance steps. Yes. <laughs> yes, you can. Oh, okay. That, uh, that last song, that answers the question. Because Motown is not just a record label. It is now a style. And the question is, can you have Motown music that's not actually recorded on the Motown label? Well, there's an example right there, the cool jerk. It's not on Motown. But there's another example. Well, there's lots of examples. But how about this? Maybe you know the Flirtations, a song called Nothing But a Heartache. You hear that on all these radios sometimes. Recorded in England, three black ladies kind of in the mold of the Supremes from America, but recorded in England. Motown style is not just... They created a style. How many record labels can you say created a style? Maybe Blue Note in jazz. Not too many. Not too many. We move on. We have more songs. We have some time, but we have more songs. Let's get going. Yeah. Oh, the Jackson 5. Look at that. Which one's Michael? Oh, yeah. He's down there in front with the big smile. Now, Barry Gordy, as I said, had, well, I'll tell him more about the, the, the slow decline of Motown, but he had withdrawn a little bit from the Motown operations. But when the Jackson 5 showed up, he was very excited by them and his contribution stepped up because of them and he co-wrote Barry Gordy co-wrote this song which was the first of four consecutive number one hits and Michael Jackson the star was only 11 o'clock not 11 o'clock <laughs> that's a time 11 years old that's what I'm trying to say well what does it sound like we're gonna find out that sounds like cool, Derek. It sounds like this.
What an incredibly beautiful uh, and well thought out arrangement. There's so much going on that you don't notice that there are no drums for almost a minute around the 50 second mark. The drummer kicks in and it just drives along. The bass starts doing a descending line at that moment. But up till then, we've had, well, there's so much going on. There's a bass stop, stopping and starting and the jing and jing and jing and jing and the guitar and the tambourine and the background vocals. But when that drums and the bass line falls, it just, it just lifts. And then they pull out again and do it again. And then the background singers come in. Oh, it's magnificent. Oh, yes. Well, let's talk about Marvin Gaye. Great shot here. You can see he's, uh, he's got a record player. He's got a tape recorder. He's got a uh, box of tape in front of him. Maybe uh, one of his children there. That's a sad story, how he died. His father shot him. Oh, yes. But we want to hear this one. We don't want to hear too much about that other stuff.
boy, that makes me want to play dance party music. I've been playing that song for years. Well, I bet you're wondering how I knew about your plans to make me blue with some other guy that you knew before. Of the two of us, I love you get there we'll get there oh yes but we will we'll get back to the concerts and everything Ooh, are any of these groups still in existence with all new lineups says anonymous um i'd like to think so i think i don't hear much about concerts in the last few years but the four tops were still going for a while I took your course says anonymous many years ago at concordia the history of rock and roll and i still have the respect tape recording we had to buy great music to hear doing exercises at the gym oh yes oh yes great music to hear at any time let's hear another i'm going i'm going another 20 minutes folks if you're still with me that's great i'm going to give you another marvin gay song and then i'm going to slowly wrap up what do we got here oh look at this one what what is going on what's going on with the world Hey, 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 what's up, man? Hey, brother, what's up? Uh, this is a hey, new recording, man. Yeah, I brother, can Right. 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 Right.
going on in our story is Motown is starting to fade out but I will uh, I'll give you all the details in just a couple more minutes one thing that happens with Smokey Robinson is he starts to feel well he's got a family and he starts to get a little tired of being on the road and uh, he wants to work you know he's working he's the vice president of Motown by the end of the 60s and what happens is the British branch of Motown start thinking we haven't had a hit record out of Smokey Robinson and the Miracles for a while and they're not making any records in the last little while anyway so somebody in the office in Britain goes back through their catalog and remember that going to a go-go album it had the tears of a clown on it was never released as a single in those days so the British people said, well, we'll release that as a single. And you know what? It became a huge hit, this old recording. And it caused Smokey Robinson to stay performing for another couple of years. And that's when I saw them in Boston in 1972. But they didn't keep going after that. Uh, except, you know, occasional revivals and stuff. We'll hear a bit of that. We've got, I think I've got three more songs, two more songs, something like that. Move on the slide. We've got oh, great shot of Smokey Robinson. Look at that. And we've got the song in question. That's next. Come on, you guys. Help me out here. No, not that. This. Oh, we did that one. What's going on? It's this one. Hey, man. What's going on? No, not that. No. Oh, we heard that. They're getting all weird around here. Don't let 
Yeah, I'll play you a bit of a couple more songs, but I want to tell you what really happened to Motown now. And again, I'm going to be reading, I'm quoting myself. Yeah. From this book called American Popular Music, Rock and Roll. Now, I've given you a bit that Holland Dozier and Holland left because of a royalty dispute. That was 67, I think I said. And Diana Ross left and she wanted to get into the movies. Well, what happened was Motown moved, Motown moved to Los Angeles in 1971. And that this and in doing so dismantled most of the structure that had run so well in Detroit. The structure was less needed anyway. That year, two Motown artists, Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye, renegotiated their contract, fought for, and won the right for complete artistic control over their records. Now, I didn't mention this, but I told you Stevie Wonder was also a drummer, but so was Marvin Gaye. The first things he did at Motown were play drums. So these guys, they didn't need all the studio musicians, especially Stevie Wonder. He could play basically all of the instruments that he needed. So when they had complete artistic control, right, they're writing their own songs too. You don't need the songwriters. You don't need the, the Funk Brothers. And there was less focus on the coordinated dancing. So the whole thing that was set up didn't really, it wasn't as needed. Of course, Stevie Wonder produced a remarkable series of albums in the 70s and Marvin Gaye released What's Going On, we just heard, and continued having hits until he was fatally shot by his father in 1984. By the early 1970s, the Temptations had weathered changing styles, and you'll hear a little bit of one of them, but other acts had folded or were in decline. The Supremes without Diana Ross continued to have hits on a more moderate scale until 1976. From the mid seventies until the eighties, several Motown stars defected to other labels. Although Motown renamed, re retained enough of its established acts and developed new ones, such as the Commodores with Lionel Richie and Rick James to maintain its position of importance. In 1983, the company celebrated its 25th anniversary with a successful TV special. The Motown Historical Museum, the one that I saw in the restored Hitsville building opened in 1985 and became an important tourist attraction in Detroit. In 1988, the year Barry Gordy was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he sold Motown Records to MCA and Boston Ventures for $61 million. He retained ownership of his publishing company. Boston Ventures later bought out MCA's interest, and in 1993, Boston Ventures sold Motown Records to Polygram in Holland, based in Holland, for $325 million originally sold for 61. What is it, five, five years later, it sold for $325 million. Motown is now a subsidiary of Universal Music, still active as a record label. Some of the legendary artists are still on the roster. Now I was writing this in 2005. I don't know if this is still the case. Others have been brought back. New artists have had success. 
Barry Gordy sold off his publishing company, which controlled the rights to virtually all of the 15,000 songs composed at Motown. He sold it off to, B, to EMI in increments. In 1997, EMI got 50% of the publishing for $132 million. In 2003, six or seven years later, they bought another 30% for $110 million. And in 2004, they bought the remaining 20% for $80 million. What are we adding up here? We're adding up just like 100, 210, it's over $300 million for the, just the publishing. The song continued to generate royalty income from radio airplay, soundtrack use, commercially licensed for new recordings such as cell phone ringtones and karaoke. Okay, I'm gonna wrap up with a very quick blast of a couple of uh, songs which you need to hear. Here is a white, a white act on Motown, not the only one. song. This is to show you that the temptations kept up with the times. But I can't play all of it because it takes about three minutes before the vocal starts. Anyway, you got the idea. So I had fun. Did you have fun? Any other questions in the questions and answers? Let's just double check. Nope. Great presentation and collection of joy. Thank you so much for that comment, Mr. Anonymous. And uh, I've got uh, a thank you to you. And I'm going to tell you folks, the glass is still half full, no matter what we're going through. The moon and the stars and the sun and the glass is still half full. So thank you, everyone. And thank you for having me. Carry on, folks. Thank you so much. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Have a great evening.